how it is in the United States, the most pluralistic society in the history of mankind that essentially guarantees to each of its citizens access, equal access, to the finest education in the history of the world. Very noble aspiration has been imperfectly applied, obviously, in our history. The time has come in the 21st century to make it the century when, in fact, we fulfill that noble objective. You're in for a treat tonight because amid all of the challenges, and I'm told there are a few in the United States today, one of the best solutions, in fact, I would argue, I often argue, the solution to most of those challenges is to improve our education. And if we're going to improve our education, we have to improve the funding model, as we like to say at the Heritage Foundation. We are, after all, a think tank, which is to say we need universal school choice. But even once we implement universal school choice, that's right, once we implement universal school choice, not if, across the fruited plain, we also have to have an education approach that is suitable for a virtuous, informed citizenry. And that means for those of us who've spent some time in classical education, the time has come for those of us who support universal school choice to talk about what's going on, not just in the classrooms, but in those places where we formulate curricula, where we formulate the very approach to education. And so it's a real pleasure to host you here tonight to facilitate any conversation on education, but particularly this one on the importance of moral education in the university. And we have three leaders with us tonight, each of whom has dedicated his career to that very question, which is ultimately a question that's devoted to human flourishing, how it is in the United States, the most pluralistic society in the history of mankind that essentially guarantees to each of its citizens access, equal access, to the finest education in the history of the world. Very noble aspiration has been imperfectly applied, obviously, in our history. The time has come in the 21st century to make it the century when, in fact, we fulfill that noble objective. We've gotten a lot of the laws right, finally, after 150 or 200 years of struggle. Now it's time to perfect the approach in the university. So each of these gentlemen you will enjoy hearing from, and I'll introduce them in turn, and then they will join me on stage as a group. First is Dr. Albert Cheng, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Education Reform at the University of Arkansas. In addition to that work, he is someone who leads the Classical Education Lab. He'll talk a little bit about that effort. It's, it's an opportunity for us with Dr. Cheng to hear about what's going on at the higher education level, but particularly also some of the work at the K-12 level, because we have to have good K-12 schools who are, of course, providing students for a moral education in the university. And then joining Albert is his former colleague from the University of Arkansas, in fact, the founder of that Department of Education Reform, Dr. Jay Green. I'm happy to say, rather pleased to say, that the Heritage Foundation stole Jay away from the University of Arkansas. He's now here at Heritage as a senior fellow in education policy and reform. Jay not only writes many articles, but I have often said, and I, and I mean it, Jay, I really do when I say this, in addition to being so charming and lovable, <laughs> that if Jay Green runs a set of data, if he analyzes a set of data, take it to the bank that it's real. That's true for anyone at Heritage, I would say, but Jay's studies on the impact of education reform really are, for those of us who are education reformers, very important. But what I love about Jay being on this panel is that in addition to that statistical work, to the work that he does in, in helping to formulate good legislation in state by state, he cares most deeply about one thing, and that's the moral education in the university. So we're honored that Jay's here with us tonight, of course, honored to count him as a colleague here. And then very special for me, in addition to my friendship with Jay and new friendship with Dr. Chang, is my longtime friend of a decade or more, Kyle Washett, who is the fourth president at a great institution called Wyoming Catholic College. I was the second president there. Kyle was my colleague there, academic dean. Kyle is, is the person I said as, as we were departing Wyoming for Texas as I was making the move into public policy. One day you need to be president of this institution. And he said, why? 
I said, you understand classical education, you understand the moral education in the university, you are a Wyoming native, and remember, Kyle, you started washing dishes at what was called the Wyoming School of Thought, which was the precursor to Wyoming Catholic College, and then you became a student of Dr. Bob Carlson, one of the co-founders of the college. You knew the other co-founder, Father Robert Cook, the first president. You went to Thomas Aquinas College, a sister school of Wyoming Catholic, and you also are a wonderful theologian and a great father. So join me in welcoming these three gentlemen to the stage. We'll get into some hard questions <laughs> from the audience in a little while. But before we get into questions, or, or specific questions rather, I just want each of you to give us a sense of the landscape as you see it about higher education generally, but particularly the question for us tonight, which is how do we improve the, the moral education in the university? Dr. Chang, we'll start with you. Yeah, um, well, I'd say we need to bring it back. Um, you know, so Good start. Actually, yeah, uh, so it used to be um, that uh, institutions of higher education would require courses in moral education. And in those courses, students would learn and talk about normative ethics. Um, and that's just gone the way of the dinosaur these days. Um, that doesn't happen. Uh, in fact, what you have in place instead are things like applied ethics, which just kind of get students and, and college students to reason through things, maybe moral dilemmas, but then it doesn't really, really make them wrestle with uh, normative questions, um, and uh, I mean, I could go on about all sorts of other things going on K twelve ed, but maybe I'll I'll start there and say, hey, we gotta bring this back and and bring uh, serious discussion and consideration of normative ethics back into to the classroom at the college level. Thanks, Jay. What would you add to that? So I, I think a central problem is actually a lack of responsibility. So uh, irresponsibility undermines moral education because there are natural consequences to bad decisions or good decisions. And if people are insulated from the consequences of their decisions, they don't learn these natural consequences and they're undermined in their ability to acquire moral education. And so the, the kind of, there are multiple layers of irresponsibility in higher education. There's excess subsidy, there's a lack of discipline, um, for bad behavior on the part of, of university administrators, and all of these are creating a world of, of consequence-free education, but that, that means morality-free education, and I think that's, that's something that we need to address. Thanks. Kyle, for, for you, as you tackle this question, I'm deeply interested in your sense of the landscape broadly, but I think for our audience, whether in person or online, it may be helpful for them too to hear about the, the particular approach that Wyoming Catholic has sure. taken to this question. So let, let me start by just the landscape broadly. One of the reasons we started Wyoming Catholic College was precisely in response to a crisis of moral education, both at the level of are we teaching it actually in schools, but also at the level of is the culture or the community in which you would even be studying it the kind of place conducive to growing in virtue. And I think when you look at what happens on your average campus, you realize quickly no, these are not places of moral seriousness, right? These are places of frat parties and uh, on one side, radicalism on the other, or extreme isolation. Um, and that's only gotten worse since COVID. Uh, so that when you look now at the landscape, you say, all right, we have a place where we don't study education or we don't study virtue. We don't see examples of virtue before us in the experience of the institution. And we don't, uh, let our students grow in a community that would be conducive to growing virtue. So Wyoming Catholic College, we're going to do something relatively radical. Uh, we're committed to having a deliberately small college because we think in part real community on a human scale is important for moral formation. We want them to have consequences and so we're going to go out into the wilderness where we're in rural Lander, Wyoming, which is already fairly rural, but then we're going to send the students out. They spend 10 weeks over the course of their four years doing various wilderness activities, hiking, backpacking, whitewater rafting with very real consequences, very real risks, um, and learning real responsibility and teamwork. And then we put them um, on horseback for a semester as well so they can learn responsibility for an animal. 
And then within that community, we create a community of moral responsibility. There's real standards, real things that need to be upheld. And then given that environment, we're going to do things like study Aristotle's ethics or have this conversation. So I think that it is both what we are doing, but also a response to what the situation is on the larger scale. How many in the audience want to go to Wyoming Catholic College? <laughs> <laughs> One of the most common things we've, we've heard there, right? So Jay, I want to take a step back or, or, or several from wonderful but small Lander, Wyoming, and, and look at the country at large as it relates to the point you made regarding responsibility. What it, in most institutions of higher education have their administrations, their boards, their faculty done to contribute to this systemic problem of irresponsibility in the institutions? Well, uh, I mean, a, a specific problem we have um, is uh, the embrace of critical theory, which um, tries to divide the world into oppressor and oppressed, um, and everyone by their group identity can be placed in those categories. And um, uh, this uh, um, is, first, it's totally antithetical to traditional American values, um, which would embrace uh, uh, equal treatment under the law um, and the treatment of people as individuals rather than as member of, members of groups. Um, but it also leads to an unlimited um, or boundless bad behavior because nothing that the individual does um, is the reason for their treatment. It's simply what the group has done um, and therefore, there's no limit to how roughly you could treat a person other than what you think the badness of their group is or the goodness of their group is. And, and so this leads to some very monstrous behavior. And we've seen this on campus in the last several weeks where large groups of students are, are marching around chanting genocidal slogans. And we're seeing faculty join um, and encourage. And we're seeing administrators being quite craven, frankly, um, and cowardly in their response. Um, and I don't think it's because the administrators themselves are deeply ideological. I just think that they uh, have have no deep commitment to principle at all, and they uh, are fearful of of those students. And so we have have a very bad situation of immoral young people running our our universities when we could use responsible adults in charge. And we'll, we'll come back to at least one element of, of that, that answer, Jay, and that is some specific proposals that you've made, we've made at Heritage about how to use the, the approach to, to moral education in the university to combat anti-Semitism. We knew this was a problem. Obviously, all of us in the United States now know that, that this is a problem, <laughs> not just in the Middle East, but unfortunately right here in the United States and across the West. Before we do that, though, Albert, I want to I want to shift gears temporarily and talk about K twelve mm -hmm. because I know that's on the minds of everyone in the audience, whether they have kids in in those grade levels or not, because it's vital to the future of our society. Have you seen that same level of irresponsibility institutionalized in K twelve schools that Jay has explained exists in higher ed? Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know how. Uh, you know, if it's the same kind of thing, I mean, certainly the administrators and uh, folks on school boards, I mean, they're responding to similar political pressures with their constituents as well. Um, and so I, I suspect something similar is, is going on there. Um, but, you know, you were mentioning classical education earlier, and, and I think that, uh, look, I mean, someone once made the claim to me that classical edu education is going to save the world, and as someone that you know, is is really uh, a, a leery of overpromising anything. You know, I was really skeptical at first, and then now, I, with each passing day, I'm like, you know, maybe, maybe this person was I right. Say, I say but, that almost uh, every day. Oh well, <laughs> great. Uh, <laughs> but you know, and I, and and um, and the reason I think that is uh, there's something fundamentally different about what's going on in these schools, um, and that uh, you know you hear anecdotally, and uh, that. Students that, that go through classical education uh, somehow get inoculated from uh, you know critical critical theory and, and basically you know illogical things and and whatever is popular politically popular these days that they think for themselves they can think independently they can think well um, which 
you know, if, if you're familiar with the essay, uh, well, it's a speech from Dorothy Sayers, but now an essay, Lost Tools of Learning. She was writing uh, about British education in the aftermath of, the, uh, of World War II. And she said, we need a recover of grammar, of logic, of rhetoric. Um, and she was, she was asking the question, why is it that entire populations just kind of gave way to German propaganda? And I think we live in a similar time today, and I think the revival of classical education today is, is responding to, to similar trends. And so, uh, you know, you've got graduates that, that uh, I mean, I wish I could do more empirical research about this, bring some more data to bear on this, but, you know, anecdotally, uh, graduates of, of classical schools, uh, they seem to be inoculated from every whim that's being tossed to and fro these days. Um, or to just put it a different way, if you let me, uh, you know, I, I heard one person say that in classical education, uh, students become good hobbits. Um, it's because when the ring comes to them, they, you know, they know what to do with it, right? That you can't really shield people from coming across the ring, right? But you know, when they do come across it, they, they know what to do. If you know, you know. Yeah. <laughs> But it comes through formation, right? It does. I mean, it's, it's, it's all the, you know, the moral formation that we're talking about is, is pivotal to, to forming people such that they're these kinds of people where they can recognize truth from falsehood, goodness from evil, um, so on and so forth. So I want to ask a follow-up question, yep. and, and then, then we'll get back to Kyle and Jay with, and you on some higher education questions. But this is a question that I'm just going to presume is on behalf of some members of the audience, because when I started a K through 12 classical school and then, then became president at Wyoming Catholic, probably the most common question I got from parents, sometimes from donors was, well, what is it? <laughs> yeah. Education. Yeah. Which, is, which is a way of saying from that person, and this would be most of Americans, right? Well, I never got that. Mm. Or I'm not, I don't think I ever got that. And, and their quote unquote skepticism actually is just an ignorance in the, in the best sense of that term. There's just a lack of knowledge about it. What's, What's the elevator pitch? What's the elevator? I, so, uh, how long's the elevator ride? One minute. It's a tall story. <laughs> and I'm using academic, right to academic. Yeah. I'm gonna time you. Uh, well, you know, so I'll make one point. Uh, first point is that Two this used left. to be mainstream. Um, that all these texts, classic texts, great books, used to be the things folks read um, multiple generations ago, and then that just kind of got lost in in the curriculum over over the past century. Um, Really, what I would say is it's an education in, in truth, in goodness, and beauty, right? Acquainting students with that, and in knowing that, wisdom and virtue flow from that, right? That if you know what's real, you know what's good, know what's true, right? Part of engagement with that is what forms you into a virtuous person. And all the, the engagement with the text, the learning, right? It's oriented to, to shaping you, not just your head and your mind, but your hands, your heart, to be oriented to, to those three things, to love, truth, goodness, and beauty. Man, we had some time left. Yeah. <laughs> nice job. Do you have tenure yet? Uh, soon, soon. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. I think it's, probably. it's under, under due process right now. So. Yeah, you probably don't want the president of the Heritage Foundation asking you about your tenure. <laughs> <laughs> but you work at a great, fair institution, and you do great work. Kyle Washett, you have been a, and still are, a faculty member and now president of your college. One of, one of the criticisms of classical education and or of moral education in the university is that for faculty members, it must somehow abridge academic freedom. How true is that? So I think the thing to remember as we think about the question of any kind of freedom, but this is true about academic freedom as well, is that if there are disagreements, there have to be a way to resolve them. And typically in the history of education, the way we have understood we resolve disagreements about what is good or what is true is because we're capable of knowing what is good and what is true and acting accordingly. And therefore, we can resolve our disagreements by a meeting of the minds, real arguments, giving of positions, real demonstrations. And that's where you get lively intellectual academic debate. When you say there isn't truth or there's not truth that's accessible or the only truth or goodness that matters is one of identity of who's the privileged group or who's the oppressed group and how are we rectifying that, 
then there's no actual academic solution to the problem. Then the only solution is one of power. And so if we actually want academic freedom, a commitment to the reality of truth and the reality of goodness is the goal of education is the only way to get it. How many colleges and universities in the United States would you say are either classical or have a, 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 a morally appropriate approach to their education? JJ might know the actual number more than I. <laughs> I think it's small. I think that's why people come all the way out to the mountains of Wyoming is they don't just turn to their neighborhood college and have the opportunity to have a community that's devoted to truth and goodness. You have to go to wild, out-of-the-way places to get it. Sometimes there's exceptions. Sometimes there's great departments. But the overwhelming weight of the propaganda and the entire engine and funding and system that has created the current higher ed monstrosity in America makes it really hard to find places that are actually committed to genuine academic freedom and goodness. That's so true. So Jay, Kyle wants to phone a friend who's a statistician, and uh, that would be you. <laughs> any, any sense of the number of schools in, in either of those categories? I agree with Kyle. I, I think it's, it's, you know, it rounds to zero. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's not just fewer than 100. It, you're right. It's, it's fewer than 50. Right. I mean, it feels like we're, we're bargaining in Sodom, you know, mm. um, if there are 10 righteous people uh, <laughs> to save the, the higher education system. Um, and I'm not sure that there are. And, and I actually think that most universities are beyond reform. I don't think it should be our project to, to rescue them um, because I think they're, they're too far gone. Um, so what do we do? Well, I, I mean, uh, the first thing I, that we might do is to, is to stop fueling bad things. So, you know, stop digging uh, when you're in a hole. So let's stop. Uh, uh, donors should be going on donor strikes. I have no idea why anyone is giving to, to these bad acting universities. They should stop. They shouldn't imagine that their gift is the gift that will turn them around. It won't happen that way. That's a mistake. Uh, give to, um, and, and I think the second thing is that we're going to need to build some new universities on new principles. I think uh, Wyoming College is, is, Catholic College is, is an example of that type of effort, but frankly, we need 50 of these. Yes. Um, and there was so it doesn't take 3,000. It, no. it, it, it takes a few dozen. And there were, we have the money. This is not a financial problem. This is a matter of will. Um, the, the wealthy people of the late 19th century founded a whole set of universities because they were dissatisfied with American universities at the time. They thought they were insufficiently attentive to sciences. And rather than donating labs to Princeton and Harvard, they built new universities, University of Chicago, Stanford, um, and they competed with them, and they helped improve the, the older institutions that existed. And I think we similarly need to build new to, if we have any hope to reform old. And, uh, and there's no reason why the super-rich of today couldn't do it as the super-rich of then did. And to your point, the, so many of the colleges today we recognize as not just the best institutions academically in this country, but in the world, were founded 400 years ago, by, by almost 400 years ago, by people with similar motivations, to your point. And there have been these inflection points. You've talked about a couple of other eras where that's, that's happened. There's no reason, just to underscore your point, there's no reason we ought not have that mentality right now. And, and obviously, we think there's some work that can be done in public policy. We'll touch on that a little bit before we turn to audience questions. One of those elements of public policy, Dr. Chang, has got to be what we do with DEI programs. Mm. What's the effect of them at the average state university, and how do we fix it? Yeah, I mean, well, uh, you know, I, I haven't had personal run-ins with, with all the uh, this myself, um, so I consider you know, myself quite fortunate. Um, but like, you know, I, I think this is like really Jay's question. I mean, he's the one that's like, <laughs> studied this uh, and, and dug up all sorts of data. I mean, you counted the bureaucracies and you... Um, They'll keep wanting to go to the numbers. You know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm a numbers guy too. I just don't have those numbers. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, we, well, we had a series of three studies at Heritage when I first arrived, the DEI trilogy, uh, diversity, university, equity elementary, and inclusion delusion in order. It was a thing who, of, who was the headline writer on that? <laughs> it was a thing of beauty. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, we counted how big these bureaucracies are. Uh, we counted how they're spreading into K-12 schools and negatively affecting achievement. And then we also documented two years ago how they were shockingly high in levels of anti-Semitism. And at the time, people did not believe it. Now, it's conventional wisdom. Um, and you know, it's, it's horrible that a bad thing has to happen in the world for, for people to begin to recognize things. But it's, it's a positive development because it means that people see the problem and they can begin to work towards solutions. So follow-up question, very much related. You would think, I would imagine, many Americans innocently think the following that diversity, equity, inclusion sounds okay. We've kind of disabused them of that. But we understand why they might think that just because of the words, they're okay. And then they, they might think until recent protests that are anti-Semitic that having a DEI program would prevent that kind of thing. But it's, it's created the exact opposite problem. How do we fix it? And in particular, how do we do it quickly enough that this scourge of anti-Semitism can if not be brought to a close once and for all, at least be mitigated. So DEI was created by excess funding. I mean, it, it, in fact, we show in another uh, a study that I did with John Schiff here um, on indirect costs, which are the, that's the overhead rate charged on federal grants, which is super high. And it's a huge source of funding for uh, especially selective universities. The bigger the indirect revenue, the bigger the DEI. So they use it to fuel, it's, it's, a, it's a slush fund for administrators that they can use for whatever is bureaucratically and politically advantageous for them. And one of those things was build a DEI bureaucracy and then you get to check that box to move up to the higher post somewhere else, or you get to use them as shock troops to, to denounce your enemies uh, and take their spots. I mean, it honestly, uh, present company accepted, university administrators uh, resemble East German bureaucrats of the 1980s, you know. Uh, I gather of, that's not a compliment. No, <laughs> no. And, and so there's, this, there's a ruthlessness there, but the ruthlessness was fueled by our tax money. And um, if we begin to starve the beast of money by donor strikes, by cutting back on excess subsidy from the public treasury, they will begin to eliminate. The first things they'll eliminate are the things that are, that are the most wasteful, and DEI will be among them. I, I, it's not that they have an ideological commitment to them. They don't. They'll ditch them if we put pressure on them to ditch them and if we cut the money. And so I, I, And it's happening. This is already happening. Florida, Texas... Um, are already beginning to abolish the, have taken steps to abolish DEI. Iowa, um, their own board of trustees just announced that they were going to do this. We can do this and we can make progress on this. Now, I don't think it's going to produce the kind of moral education that we're talking about here, but it will make the problem less bad in our um, legacy institutions. So, thank you. So, Dr. Chang, we perhaps have run the risk of depressing our audience <laughs> by talking about how few of these schools exist. And so I'm going to lean on you and your numbers Yeah, yeah. to tell us what is the most exciting, hopeful aspect of the future of education based on your research. Uh, so, you know, one of the things we do at the Classical Education Research Lab is to try to, to get a pulse on the landscape of the classical education movement. Um, and so it, it actually gives me a lot of hope. Um, so, you know, we recently fielded the survey with, a, with an association, a national association. And, um, uh, you know, if you go to the, these conferences, national conferences where these school leaders and teachers gather for prof professional training and, and networking, um, everyone just kind of, you know, at, at, the, at the coffee uh, refreshment area, you know, they all say like, wow, you know, parents are interested in this. It's picking up. It's growing. And the question is, is it, just the, is it just isolated cases or is this happening nationally? So um, in the survey, uh, we found that uh, one in five schools um, have been founded within the last five years. Okay? And so nationally, like new schools are being founded, um, classical schools at the K-12 level. Um, actually, in Northwest Arkansas, um, we're up to four classical schools, new classical schools in the last six years. Um, 
uh, actually did a, a study of uh, classical charter schools in Texas. In the past 10 years, the, the, the charter sector in Texas has always been pretty healthy. Uh, enrollment has doubled um, in the past 10 years for the charter sector as a whole. If you look at classical charter schools um, alone as, as a segment, uh, student enrollment for that sector has grown sevenfold in the past 10 years. And so I, I think at the K-12 level, there's this groundswell that's coming. And of course, I mean, it, you know, it, it actually is, is kind of this uh, a call to, to all of us to, to you know, steward this movement and invest in it and, and grow it. Um, but I think what's happening at K-12 is, is reason for hope because uh, these are going to be graduates. These are going to be students that not only know how to think well, um, but, you know, I don't know that Wyoming Catholic is going to be able to handle all of them that are looking for a liberal education at K-12 level. <laughs> and yet, not only did you offer some, some real substantive hopefulness, you've also indicated that we, we really have reason to expect there to be the same kind of demand at the higher education level as there is at the K through 12 level. So Kyle Washett, last question from me, uh, for all of you now before we turn to the audience, what lessons have you and your colleagues at Wyoming Catholic College drawn about your approach to education that are transferable to either an existing institution or who knows who's here in the audience or watching tonight or sometime down the road where they're gonna use this panel and your piece of advice on how to approach building their new institution? So I'd say first and foremost is the thing we've already been touching on. Radical reform of higher ed is necessary. And a willingness to do two things, to commit to radical moral education and a radical, radical commitment to truth, require a kind of break with things that we assume are typical of the higher ed model. That you do not need to be dependent on federal funding. You do not need to kowtow to DEI. You do not need to be in the same established circles to do a college education. Just like 15 years ago, it was really hard to convince people that classical education startups were a good thing for K through 12. We're still on the front end of that for the colleges, but it is absolutely possible and it's absolutely vital. The other thing I think is that it's really, really important, whatever we do with education, one of the things we haven't hit um, as a driving force behind the radicalizing that happens on campus is the isolation and the radicalizing that happens because of the increasing reliance on social media and absorption into phones and technology on your average college campus. Your average college campus now is very often an experience of loneliness in a dorm, absorption in interaction with avatars on a screen, and that's what you do. But if what's necessary for reforming education is authentic human community on a human scale committed to truth and goodness, you've got to turn off the screens in some way. Now, at Wyoming Catholic College, they just give up their phone. <laughs> Maybe that can't happen at every college campus, but some way turn off the screen and in some way put the students in an encounter with the wilds of nature with real consequences and real responsibility. Whether that's 10 weeks while living in a rural mountain town, maybe not everyone's lucky enough to do that. But something like that needs to happen at every college campus. A great response, thanks gentlemen. So I might have one more question for y'all at the end, but we're gonna to turn to the audience and we just have one rule. Please phrase your long comment <laughs> in the form of a short question. <laughs> So raise your hand, the mics will come to you. Those are necessary for at least one of us on the stage to hear your question and for everyone who is tuned in online. Ma'am, you get the first question. Microphone's coming your way. Uh, yeah, today I learned about the horrors that are known as Ohio State University. And in addition to the 189 DEI employees at $20 million a year, the faculty was required to take a test to see if they adhere to that ideology in every single subject matter, like biology or whatever. I was wondering if you'd be able to talk to us about how many, how widespread, how, sorry, how many colleges are having these kinds of tests 
throughout their university so that we can understand just how widespread the problem is. Jay, everyone's looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the, there are trainings, and the trainings have little tests at the end, so maybe that's what you're referring to. So there are mandatory DEI training at most institutions uh, in the United States. Um, and uh, although, I mean, they're not very good, right? So, so I, I used to think, I used to be hopeful that none of this would be really dangerous because kids didn't really learn it. You know, it's kind of bad. And so, like, it's really hard to, to indoctrinate people with, with really bad quality stuff. And this, I, so I, I, I think I falsely reassured my own children. Oh, don't worry. All the other kids who are spotting crazy stuff, they'll just grow out of it. They'll go off into jobs. It will impose a responsibility on them. And they'll become normal. Um, and that turned out not to be true. I was wrong. Um, and... Um, so I don't, I don't think it's that our universities are brainwashing into the nonsense, but what they're doing is they're facilitating an irresponsibility that is perpetuating this nonsense, allowing it to spread. And then somehow employment is doing the same, especially government sector is a highly irresponsible sector um, that welcomes. So the State Department is populated with people with crazy ideas. Why? Because there's no consequence to being wrong. Um, so, so uh, you're, but that, to just quickly get back to your question, how widespread it is, it's near universal that there is um, some sort of DEI orthodoxy being enforced in public universities and private universities across this, the country. That's near, it's near universal. Next question. Yes. The dapper gentleman <laughs> thing. The far end of the row. My colleague, Dr. Jay Richards. So, so some of us, probably a lot of us in the room that are parents have been beneficiaries, at least for our children, of this kind of education. But I've constantly reminded that it feels very much like a luxury good. And two of you mentioned briefly the idea that at some point, if it becomes prevalent enough, it will actually, there'll be competitive pressure on uh, the, the state schools and the other schools that are a disaster. I mean, what needs to happen? What's that threshold where you could actually have uh, competitive pressure? Kyle, you want to start? Yeah, I, I think at some level we're starting to see that break now. It's what Jay was saying. What needs to happen first, and it's going to be private individuals before the gears of government kick in here, is to turn the funding spigot off. And that there are a number of very wealthy individuals that are propping up this situation, such that for most state universities and certainly of the big legacy schools, tuition is a gatekeeping tool. It's not actually what funds the, the, the bizarre operation. I think if we can turn off the spigot there and get people genuinely to start investing in, I think there are, more than zero, yeah. uh, colleges out there that are genuinely doing real attempts at this. And there are all sorts of people in America who keep giving money to their alma mater because that's what you do. And if they turn off the spigot and they start investing in these radical colleges that are actually taking a stand, that are actually helping build a country that they want to live in, then I think we see that turning this from, oh, this is a pie in the sky <laughs> elite dream Dude, this is becoming a normative thing that's a real option for folks. It's what happened with the classical ed schools, K through 12, and I think it's, we're gonna see that happen. But we need the donors, in some ways, to lead the way. Albert, would you like to weigh in? Uh, I mean, so, you know, certainly at the K-12 level, as we see universal school choice programs being passed, I mean, uh, you know, to invoke Churchill um, after Al, Al Main, right? I, th I think this is the end of the beginning um, because, you know, Getting the law and policy right is is just that, um, and it's really up to schools now to step up. Um, so I'm, I'm on the board of a local classical school in in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Uh, we're three years old, um, and so you know we're qualifying. Uh, we have some students on, on the Learns Act money there, um, and we're discovering wow, it actually takes a lot of effort to to uh, you know invite these students in, and and there's a little bit of an administrative burden. Uh, but our hearts are there, and, and we realize, like, just kind of magically waving a magic wand to, 
to, to open up a new classroom and find a new teacher and, and find more space. Uh, those, yeah, it's, it's not magic. And so it takes a lot of work. Um, so really, I, I, th I think uh, the opportunity is there before us. Um, and that, that competitive pressure, I think, that you, you're referencing earlier will show up. But um, there's still a lot of hard work to be done. And, and I think it's, it's an all-hands-on-deck um, task that, that's before us. Thank you. Yes, sir, all the way in the back. Right there. Thank you all uh, for what you're doing. Uh, in education, get new teachers. Uh, you mentioned it, Albert, just a second ago. That seems to me to be the spigot yeah. uh, problem. What policy solutions, what cultural adaptations, how do we get more teachers who know what they're doing in this field in a hurry, which seems to be the, the major slow up? Yeah. Albert? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll wait on that. So, um, uh, Jay and I didn't talk beforehand, but but I'm I'm of the opinion that we need to build new teacher training institutions. Um, that your traditional schools of education, um, they're not going to train your teachers that are going to staff schools that are are in the liberal tradition. Um, and so, fortunately, there's there's efforts going on. I mean, University of Dallas um, is a big one. Um, uh, actually, just down the road um, in Tulsa, where I, where I'm at. Uh, there's a new honors college, uh, Jennifer Frey, Matthew Post, just some, some folks in the movement um, are starting a new honors college. Um, and so uh, there's some thought there about, hey, can we seed the next generation of teachers to staff these schools? Um, actually, I'll, I'll just uh, give a shout out to uh, actually another University of Arkansas alumni. Um, uh, Michael McShane at, at EdChoice just did a study on, on the teacher pipeline. And... Uh, the takeaway in that study, you know, after reviewing schools of ed um, and serving teachers, is that these traditional programs aren't aren't at all preparing teachers to teach in private schools, let alone classical schools. Uh, we need content experts. We need people who understand the tradition, understand, uh, have a different imaginary about education, a different educational paradigm. You're not going to get that with what we have now. And so, again, lots of hard work to be done in, in building institutions to eventually seed. Uh, these new schools for generations to come. I've got three really quick policy proposals that I think we sh should do to take advantage of schools like Wyoming Catholic College, like University of Dallas, that are producing these greatly educated, well-formed students that want to go into the education field. First, I think states or districts should remove the requirement that you have an education degree, right? You get a great degree in the liberal arts or something, and you're very equipped to communicate effectively. I think states should also, as part of school choice programs, be willing to forgive the student debt of young men and women who teach there, especially in some of these classical schools. Currently, there's a lot of debt forgiveness programs that are tied to uh, teaching in the public school system, which is well and good. But these classical schools, again, building fresh, if we're going to have school choice programs, I think maybe some debt relief for the uh, young men and women who go to places like University of Dallas, Wyoming Catholic College, and want to teach and help build up are going to be really key. And third, I think being able to somehow fast track students in some way to effectively recruit them, again, with some kind of policy support in the way that they're doing for public school support, but looking for supporting these these. Uh, rising schools are going to be really key for helping get better teachers there. So much in the education model writ large has to change. And, and I'll just channel my inner Jay Green, say, <laughs> actually I'll channel all of us at the Heritage Foundation and say, for us it starts with eliminating root and branch the U.S. Department of Education. Because if we succeed in doing that, yes, you ought to applaud for that. <laughs> <laughs> I was just doing an interview with a reporter for a major outlet. He was asking about our Project 2025. I promise this is related, gentlemen, about presidential transition. And he said, well, what do you think about this proposal from one candidate about a national teacher licensure program? And I said, we hate it. He said, could you be clearer? <laughs> what do you think about such and such through the Department of Education? I said, we hate it. He said, why do you hate these things? I said, because we want the department to go away. There's a certain consistency here, but if you're sitting, especially in, in Kyle's chair, that could be really helpful. But it would be helpful for, of course, everyone in education.
Yes, ma'am, you've been very patient. The microphone's right next to you. Thanks so much. Um, to your point, Dr. Roberts, scholastically, how would an employer even be interested in a student, as I'm watching Stanford lower their expectation of students entering college, why would an employer even want to hire these students once they're out of, once they're graduated from school? I mean, if we put the emphasis on uh, scholastically competing with these woke, for lack of a better word, woke agenda schools, like I can't imagine their their SATs and their scores are that high comparatively to institution um, such as the gentleman from Wyoming with the boots and cowboy hat. <laughs> Sorry. Jay, you want to tackle that? Um, I think this is beginning to change. Employers are beginning to notice that, that there are problems with simply relying upon universities as their HR department. Basically, they screen for, for two things, cognitive ability, so highly selective schools do demand high uh, achievement test scores, which are kind of IQ proxies, right? So they, and employers are not allowed to administer IQs, uh, but they can use the universities as a screening tool. And then they also screen for kind of a non-cognitive skill of, of perseverance. So do you show up? Do you complete assignments? Do you follow directions? Um, can you complete tasks? These are things employers want too. Universities screen for this too. Now this is, you know, an incredibly expensive, inefficient, job interview tool, um, and we don't need it uh, for that. And um, uh, so I think they're going to, employers are going to begin to look for, for more efficient um, and, and more precise methods going forward, especially as the, the non-cognitive things that, they're that they were hoping to screen for are no longer present. I don't think they're screening for people who follow directions, complete tasks, and so on. I, I think they're getting the opposite. Yeah, great question. Thank you, ma'am. Yes, sir. This is supposed to get to method, but in teaching on morals, it seems we have the chance now to have, use examples. Um, in the politics of it, the Clintons used post-Constitution. Now, I would say they set the example how not to set an example. Barack Obama has a book, A Promised Land, and yet we'd question that. So if, if do we now have two examples that we have to challenge to raise the morals? And would originalism be the separation of church and state leaves that America would be a promised land for people of scripture, that they left the jurisdiction of under, under God. So everyone's under their creator, right from creator. Um, so it's how do you use the examples for teaching the morals? And are we at a time where we actually have um, political examples of what not to do and just by raising up the discussion of what is actually the constitutionalism versus what was the politics. Kyle? So I, that is one of the things that um, I didn't mention in our initial discussion is that one of the key traditional ways of moral teaching is the tradition you're part of has certain stories that illustrate and embody the morals and the values of the society. Part of what the commitment to DEI has led us to is ridiculing those examples or talking about why they're examples of privilege or oppression or various things. It is a real challenge, I think, in a society where we don't have common stories, whether it's the biblical narrative, whether it's the great epics of the Greeks and the Romans, to be able to look to and inspire folks and say, this is what it means to be a hero, this is what it means to be a good citizen. So again, uh, not to unduly toot our own horn, but to toot our own horn. Mm -hmm. At Wyoming Catholic College, we certainly do a lot of storytelling, a lot of these examples, a lot of this passing on of the tradition, because that's actually what moves the heart. C.S. Lewis talks about, if you just talk about the idea, you don't actually get morally formed people that follow through on tasks. You've got to inflame their, their chest, give them an education of the heart, so they really act. And I think any education of morals is going to really depend on giving those stories that probably most of us in this room think are important, think really move you and inspire you. And all education, K through 12, but also college, needs to pass on those stories, absolutely. We have time for a couple more questions. Uh, gentlemen, all the way to the side. Microphone's coming your way. Oh, you, you sir, yes, you. 
Thank you. Some Republican politicians have seemed to suggest higher education reform go some in somewhat of the opposite direction toward trades and STEM hmm. that might not leave room for classical education. So what's the role in a system for an increased emphasis on classical education at the same time, an increased emphasis on trades and filtering out young people into uh, non-liberal arts areas. Albert, you want to take the lead? Yeah, sure. I'll, also, I'm curious to hear what, uh, what Kyle does at his school. Curious about that. Um, but I'll, I'll say that the two, I don't think, are mutually exclusive. Um, that I, I know we, I mean, if you I guess, invoke Aristotle, you know, talk about uh, liberal arts versus servile arts, and there seems to be a separation there. But I don't know that that they have to be separate. Um, and, and in fact, I, I would say to uh, do well at a, a particular vocation um, requires moral understanding. Um, uh, I mean, just take engineering, for instance. Um, I think a lot of institutions these days, if you bracket you know, away, set aside the, the, the moral part of it, you know, all they're about engineering is simply, can I build something? Um, but there's a more important question of like, should you build that thing? Are there certain things we ought not to build? And so, so I think uh, whatever the, the vocation, whatever the trade, um, there has to be some, some moral training, moral formation there to, to actually do that well. Um, you know, of course, how do you strike that balance? I mean, that's, I guess that's a separate question. Right. Um, but I don't know if Kyle has a... Yeah, I, I, I absolutely echo that, right? The idea that somehow training someone to be honest and not embezzle is not training them to be a good employee is a weird idea, right? We all uh, implicitly assume that being a good human person is an important part of being a good employee. I don't want them to steal from me. I don't want them to, you know, say hurtful things in an angry way or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, but we also ironically think that somehow we might need to spend five years of intense study and practice to begin to be an engineer, but seemingly we'll pick up being a good person on the side uh, in an environment that, as we've already said, is not at all conducive to that. So step one, I think we need to say it is important to do moral formation and it is worth investing in that moral formation heavily. And it's worth investing in it heavily, not just at K through 12, but even at that adult entry into the workforce level. That being said, there's all sorts of creative things one can do beyond that. And we're constantly experimenting at Wyoming Catholic College with what that might look like. Are there summer internships we can do for practical training? Are there work you can have for you know, some amount of time during the week where you're apprenticing um, in a particular trade? Are there things like that you can do? The thing we don't want to say is that somehow that's of equal import to training morally good people or that somehow we could cut some corners on moral training so that this person's a more efficient uh, craftsman. That it doesn't matter how good of a craftsman is if they're a lousy human being and we don't want to cut corners there. Final question, dapper gentleman in the center. Thank you very much, Dr. Uh, Dr. Roberts. So uh, I imagine you all are familiar with a recent book written by a noted uh, jurisprudential scholar, Hadley Arcus, on mere natural law. And I wonder, uh, natural law, his argument is that it, it undergirds our entire constitutional system, even though it's not written into the Constitution, it undergirds it. Do you see this as a component in restoring higher education in the line of morality? Jay, you want to start? Oh, I, I was going to defer to others. I, <laughs> so, I'm, just, I'm just used to you having an answer to everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, <laughs> bad quality. Um, it's not a bad uh, quality. So, uh, I mean, I, I, I think that, that we could potentially point to any kind of one big idea as, as the one thing everyone must know. Um, and um, I think that there are kind of competing one big ideas uh, that, we, that we might have undergirding our system. So I'm not sure I'd want to go all in. Um, uh, and even our understanding of natural law might, is not, we don't have consensus on, on, on that. 
So, um, I mean, let, let me quick pivot and, and just answer quickly the last question also, which I think might help, which is maybe oddly the way to fix education is to have less of it. Um, <laughs> that the problem is education itself. Um, and that this pivot towards vocational is really a pivot away from abstract mm. education and make it concrete. Um, people learn trades. But, but in, in doing things with, natural, with consequences, you might actually acquire a moral foundation better than through mere abstractions and kind of formal education and abstract thinking. And it's possible that that would be consistent with a tilt towards natural law um, as well. So just a, a thought That's for... A lot of food for thought there. Yeah. So, so thank you. Kyle, I imagine you probably want to advocate for that. Uh, absolutely. And it's, it's disappointing to me that 57 minutes into this panel, we discover a point of contention. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we love debate at the Heritage Foundation. But as it is. There it is. So I get to give uh, one of our great uh, taglines at Wyoming Catholic College. One of the reasons we like putting the students out in the wilderness is we say that what's happening there is they're encountering God's first book which is ultimately a, a kind of a natural law claim that written in the foundations of the creation are certain foundational principles that you learn experientially first before abstractly. And I think fundamentally that does undergird moral formation. Now, if you just try to do it by, I'm going to memorize the big book of natural law, you're actually missing what natural law is, right? Natural law can't just be simply translated into the book. Natural law is fundamentally experienced with real consequences in real communities at a real human scale. I think, ideally, in the wilderness at times. Um, that, I think, does undergird. Otherwise, if, if creation, if nature, isn't what undergirds moral theory, then it's merely convention, then it is really a question of who gets to be the privileged person in charge, who gets to say what we do. Mm -hmm. The only way to completely avoid the DEI privileged power struggle is to say there's something undergirding that can be universally experienced, and that's found in the created world, and we're gonna say that's natural law. So lightning round. Told you I would, might ask one more question, I will. And it's, it's under the category of something that we try to do here at Heritage with all of our panels, hopefully all of our research, and that is we can talk about abstract things. To some extent, parts of this conversation were by design, moral education in the university. But we, we try to conclude by pointing not just to hopefulness, but what each of us can do, given our respective stations in life. And so the, the, the question is, what one practical thing that is practical for just people in this audience can someone do to contribute to the moral education in the university? It could be reading a book. It could be participating in some activity. But I'm curious to hear on behalf of the audience what each of you will say. Dr. Cheng? Um, I'll uh, step back and go to the, the K-12 worlds and Good. say get involved. Um, volunteer. Uh, new school, you know, help build a school, help a new school, uh, get in the classroom. Um, I mean, I now know it's really hard work to do it, <laughs> and and we're always looking for people to step in, um, uh, and it's going to take every one of us to to do their part. But when we're talking about reclaiming a country, that isn't just at the ballot box. No, no, not no. just in the courtroom. It's not just in the halls of Congress. Those are important. The really important work is what you just described. Right. So I really appreciate that response. Dr. Green? So I think all of us can do something to help impose consequences on bad behavior. Um, You're really focused on discipline today. I, I, well, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, for example, many of us are employers um, or have some role in that. Stop hiring bad people. I mean, just go out, out of your way to decide that there are people that you just don't want working around you. Um, and um, uh, 
I mean, this this used to have the the a, a, a name blacklist, which is uh, not uh, well well thought of. We could call it name and shame, and then it's more reputable. But we need to name and shame bad actors in university settings, both both faculty, staff, and students, and shun them. Uh, and that's part of how you get more moral behavior is by by shunning badness. Thank you. I appreciate that, President Washington. So I think one of the things we've hit on is that part of the problem facing higher education is that unlike at the 19th century where there was this active agency and we can reform this, we kind of take the current mess as at least in some way the status quo. And so I think the first thing we need to do is try to reawaken our minds to a way of reconceiving what higher education might be. And to that, I'd say there's a book that's worth reading or any number of books or essays worth reading, but they're not about higher education per se. They're, they're by Wendell Berry. Hmm. And, and I think Wendell Berry does this great job of making us rethink what exactly the role of wealth is, what the role of technology is, what the role of community is in human existence, simply speaking. And if we can recalibrate those properly, then we can better have the conversation with our children, with young people we know, with donors you're trying to convince to donate to Wyoming Catholic College, whoever it may be, you're able to have this conversation about what the point of human life is and therefore what the point of education is. And I think reading Wendell Berry is a great place to start. Here, here, For all of you in the audience and for me, uh, thank you, gentlemen, for a great panel. Thank you for what each of you does for restoring proper education, moral education, university. Please join me in thanking our panel. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.